0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Hi there. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. I'm Lara Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist from teachmetotalk.com and myei2.com, and I'm so happy to be back in the land of the living today. Last week I had to cancel the show at the very last minute because of kidney stones and it is so good to be back at work today. You don't really appreciate all the mundane tasks that you get to do in the course of a week until you don't do them and so today I'm really happy to be back and I'm even more excited about today's guest for the show. With us we have Dr. Cynthia Kress who is a speech language pathologist from University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Hi Dr. Kress, how are you? Doing just fine. Thank you, Laura. I'm so excited that you accepted my um, invitation to be on the show. I first heard Dr. Chris and her work when I was at ASHA last year in Atlanta, and she did a wonderful presentation on an upcoming assessment tool, that will be available what year will that that it takes a while to get a tool published doesn't it
0: it does take a while we're still developing this tool and we're going to be norming it starting this fall and it will probably be another two or three years of norming and another year of production so it's in process wow. but um, wow. should be a good tool for early communication uh, assessment for kids under a year old
1: and I think that is such a great tool for all of us to be able to access. And I loved your presentation about the information, and we'll be talking about that tool. But more importantly, the milestones that you'll be assessing using that tool. And then I hope that we can get to a practical application um, segment because I think that's where. Most of our listeners um, will find um, more help than anything else would hear on the show today is how to take those, those milestones or those early skills and then how to really target those in therapy sessions. And, and most of the time, I work with children in that birth to three um, age range. I don't always see children under one chronologically, but I see lots of kids in that developmental range. you just spoke about yeah and so the, the assessment will be applicable for those kinds of children as well right
0: absolutely yes and i'm um that's also my service delivery area both in terms of children in that age range and adults in that age range working on strategies to help children become more intentional with their communication to become more symbolic with their communication and that's part of what drove me to want to develop this assessment because there aren't good ways of getting a sense of what a child can do that we can build on rather than all those assessments that look what a child can't do. And that doesn't exactly. help as much like, What what can we work with for therapy.
1: And that's what I like so much about your presentation. And you talked about really looking, again, at their strengths, versus yep. their weaknesses and how to work in some of those additional things even if they're not doing it. And again I think it's a different light uh, or a different direction to use when we're looking at assessment versus what we typically do. And and again this developmental range is so hard mm-hmm. for those of us even who specialize in these um early developmental ages to really get a handle on. So I'm so excited about this tool. But let start out, since we have a nice mix um, of our audience for this podcast, between parents and therapists, and even therapists who aren't necessarily speech-language pathologists. So let's define pre-intentional communicators, and uh, Dr. Kress, if you could just speak to that a little bit and, and give us a working definition of that.
0: You bet. Let's start with what intentional communication is because that there's a very good. good assessment out there called the CSBS Communication mm-hmm. and Symbolic Behavior Scale, and that's sold by Brooks Publishing. And that's, as soon as kids can do intentional communication, a very good assessment of their skills. What intentional communication is, you hold a toy out in front of a child, and they look at you and hold their hand out to you and go, eh, eh. They aren't yet telling you in words but they are communicating directly and deliberately to you to say, I want you to give me that thing, and I know that you're a tool to get me to uh, receive that thing. And children typically around eight or nine months will be um, starting to develop those kinds of skills. And, in fact, CSBS starts at about nine months and up. Mm -hmm. You can see kids anywhere from nine months to a year still working on that skill. But usually by about a year, children can reach out their hand and go, eh. And so when children don't do that, you'll hold a toy out, and they'll reach for the toy. Or you'll hold your hands out, saying, "Do you want up, and they'll reach for your hands, but they won't really connect it to you yet. And so it's those earlier skills where I know how to look at the thing I want, or I know how to respond to my world, but I'm not yet very good at starting my own behavior to get this new thing to happen. So that's what the new assessment is. It's meant to be the early version of the CSBS so that we can get a much broader picture of the kinds of communication skills that children have when they don't yet have that uh uh-uh. And as parents, as a parent myself, you don't really get a sense of what else there is to learn because kids move through that stage So fast, we forget about all the skills they learn with looking at people and paying attention to things and looking back and forth between you and the toy and sticking with a task. These are all kinds of things that this assessment measures that we're not used to paying attention to as parents or as therapists because they just happen so fast we, we don't even process them until the child can intentionally communicate. Exactly. So this new okay, and I
1: think
0: go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, this new assessment is called the ISCBS, the Infant Social and Communication Behavior Scale. And it looks not just at communication, which is how do I know what this child wants or doesn't want, but a whole bunch of other skills around communication, like paying attention, like showing emotion, like what we call mastery, how much will this child Stick with a task. How much can we challenge them versus how much are they liable to kind of give up and move on if things don't happen right? Um, Right. Ways of using their voice even long before they know speech. Ways of acting on literate information, books and songs and nursery rhymes, long before they know what a book is for other than to eat it. Exactly. um, (laughs) So we're looking at building children's skills at things like taking turns with adults or engaging with adults or paying attention to adults to learn those important skills of communication, partly because what we've learned is that a lot of children can start to miss out on some of these skills early on, like children on the spectrum, for instance, where we know perhaps from when they're born, kids aren't as naturally paying as much attention to some of the people. Uh, signals around them, paying as much attention to people's faces. And so the more we could detect that happening in the early years, the more we can start to work with that child at helping them pay attention to different parts of their environment and make better
1: use of those social signals in their very early years. Yeah, and I think these things are so easy for parents to miss because they're busy, (laughs) they're living their lives, and then all of a sudden they realize, well, we haven't heard many words yet, Mm -hmm. but they haven't really considered all of those foundational little skills that have to come first. And so I think this is even a great way uh, for a therapist to know what else to talk to parents about and really mm-hmm. we measure these things sometimes so informally but it's so nice that now we'll have a way to really quantify these things and, and really again um, so that we can not only work on these things in therapy but also share information with parents because again parents miss this piece a lot. Do you that see too. that in your practice where your parents aren't, aren't really aware?
0: Oh absolutely. <laughs> that, in so, fact
1: some of the early research that we did about this
0: tool, we had done, um, had participants in our study that were themselves speech language pathologists or other kinds of early educators and very, very aware about this process. And yet, when we would ask them to reflect on their child's communication, we found that even we as professionals are missing some of these early signals, like the ways that children show that they notice something interesting in their world and want to share it with you, but they haven't yet pointed at it to share it with you. Most of us are missing this kind of signal.
1: Right. So give us some examples of other ways that a child beyond pointing should be, because pointing a lot of times with kids that we get in early intervention, that's a skill that they do not have yet. And chronologically that child may be 24 months, 28 months, 32 months, that skill hasn't emerged yet. We aren't seeing very many gestures, but what are some other things that that parents could be looking for that would indicate that a child is um, becoming more and more aware of his environment and, again, building up to that communicative um, piece?
0: Well, a couple of things in response to that. One is that um, each child has their own package of ways that they indicate these skills. And so a tool that I recommend all the time for early communicators all the way up to verbal communicators is called a communication signal inventory. Some people will call Mm -hmm. these gesture dictionaries. And I don't Mm -hmm. call them gesture dictionaries because that sounds like it's gestures and us. I mean, any way that we can tell what it is that a child is doing that is meaningful to us in some way. Like they make that face and we can tell they're bored. Well, what does that face look like? does that face always mean bored? So one way that a child might show interest in something is to stare at it intently. Well, we sort of in the back of our mind know we can keep playing with this toy, but we forget to give this child feedback to say, I know you're interested by this signal. So I call parents a lot of the times when they notice these, first of all, to create this kind of inventory for a child who's still working on being aware of these signals, to make pages of these communication signals so that everybody in that child's environment can recognize these symbols and plan a way to respond to them. So that's what this communication signal inventory is for. And then as you notice this, so let's say the child leans forward and stares intently at something, and that could mean they're interested, that they like it, that they're kind of trying to share it with you, but they don't exactly know how. So what you do, the child's staring at this toy you reach up and you touch their face and say, I I see, wow, and you label it in some way. But you, more more than anything, you tell them what signal it was that they produced, and then you do more <laughs> of whatever it is they're talking about, or you show it, or you help them point towards it, or you help them look back at you as another way of being a little bit more deliberate about sharing this event with you. So maybe you move the toy up towards your face and help them connect between the toy and your face. And you go, yeah, wow. And you help them be just a little bit more deliberate, a little bit more
1: communicative in the way they're producing that signal. Exactly. Those are great ideas. I love sharing those with parents. One thing that I do is put my face... um, Even if I'm not bringing the toy to my face, I try to put my body right there beside it so that I'm still in their line of vision and, again, giving them a reason to include me in that visual path or in what they're looking at, too, because a lot of times our our little guys do get so hyper-focused on objects rather than people when we're playing, and so we do have to interject ourselves in that so that a child is more apt to um, start to develop that. Uh, joint right. attention space that are shifting back and forth um, between right. an object that we're talking about and sharing.
0: And I've also found that some of our children may not want to look at us, and so we uh. may need to have other ways that they can share this event with us if our face is a little bit overstimulating, and that can be the case for some kids. So I'll put my hand uh. out in, in in between them and the toy so that they will look at my hand and then look at the toy or touch my hand and then touch the toy. And that's a way for me to be involved in that event without them necessarily having to look up at me, either because of physical head control or because my face is kind of overstimulating and it's, you know, a processing issue.
1: So I still want to be
0: part of, and like you say, insert myself into that interaction in some way so that the child learns to include me or learns that I'm relevant. And part of that experience as well is to set up situations in which I am a relevant part of this interaction. So playing with toys, sometimes kids can play with toys all by themselves and they don't need me. So I want to set up a social routine where I am the toy. So we're going to bounce you on my knee or we're going to toss you on the couch or we're going to play airplane with you up in the air. And something like that, then my hand becomes a lot more relevant to want to look at that hand or touch that hand and then control that to get that social involvement. So they're going to maybe engage with me more. They're going to be more intentional at touching my hand. They may shift attention back up to me, all the kinds of things this assessment's assessing, and they might stick with it longer because they know they're playing with a toy, that is me, that's pretty responsive to them and pretty um, easy to control.
1: And so is your advice to therapists um, when you have a child who's a little over-focused on the toys just to take a step back from objects and play lots of those social games and people games first? That's that's what I recommend. I hope you're going to say the same thing.
0: No, I, I would because um, if you have a child who's focused on the toys, we as speech-language pathologists are talking about communication. Now, it may be a perfectly good fine motor task to control the toys. It may be a cognitive task to learn to control the toys. But since we're focused on communication, if the toy is not a bridge to that message getting shared with us, let's get the toy out of the picture, and then we can always add the toy back into the routine. I'll play tickle with little wind up toys. Or I will trade turns at putting blocks in or something. But first and foremost, I want them paying attention to their, to their parents, to their partners, to me, and taking those turns because that's the ground exactly. root of communication.
1: Exactly. And how, how do you teach parents to do that? What are your recommendations uh, for that for parents? Cynthia, because we'll to do some well, parent training too. We were talking about this before the show. Well,
0: one of the first things I do is to look at and listen to what the family is already doing, that parents will often have little silly things that they'll do with their children they don't even think are games. I'll ask my parents, for instance, what do you do if you're sitting in the doctor's office and it's 20 minutes and there aren't any toys to play with? What do you do to entertain your child? And they'll say, well, we kind of did this little tippy thing, and they'll tip them off their lap, and they don't really think of it as a game, or I had one parent who would set her child who had very significant motor involvement. who couldn't move much beyond her shoulders or head. And she developed this wonderful little routine where she'd set the child on her chest and the child would twitch one shoulder, and whichever shoulder she twitched, the mom would roll her off that side and catch her. And that was just very fun wow. her guard. And then she'd put it back on her chest, and she might twitch her shoulder. She'd say, okay, now, which way? Which way should we go? And the child got to make a choice by just twitching one shoulder, and then she'd roll it off. I would never have thought of this routine if I hadn't taken the time to do this communication signal inventory and to watch them and say, ooh, she's taking her own turn. She's controlling her. And it's a game I never would have thought of, but it took maximum advantage of this child's unique abilities. So first and foremost, look at what parents do naturally already together with their children where the child will seek out that contact and the parent knows how this game works and then all you do is maybe add a little pause so the child has a chance to take a turn like tickling a lot of times we as parents as long as they're laughing we just keep tickling well what (laughs) would happen if you say i'm going to get you and you hold your hand just short of tickling the child now the child has to take a turn to get something to happen maybe they look at you maybe they look at your hand Maybe they make a sound, and that's them starting to take more responsibility for this interaction. So you look at what the natural routines already are, and then you talk with the parents about what would feel comfortable about adding in a pause or having them help touch your hand or just adding something to this interaction that makes it a little bit more of a turn on the child's part so that they know how to play the role. And then the parents become comfortable in waiting and expecting that turn. And then if the child does, then you help them take the turn. You help them look. You help them touch so that they can still play that game. But you make it fit into what they naturally do.
1: And I think that's such important information, too, because a lot of times I think parents are expecting us, especially in those early therapy sessions, To go right to words. And if we are not eliciting or really trying to get a word or a sign, or if we're using some kind of AAC, a picture or whatever we're using, they're not really thinking this is real therapy when you're waiting on those things, like you said, a look a touch, mm-hmm. something that just a lean forward, even something so subtle. But that's exactly where we need to start with so many of the kids that we see because they're not developmentally ready to do more than that. And they have to learn how to take their turn first in those more subtle ways before they're ever ready to get to um, talking. Right, and what we also
0: do, a couple of things in response to that. One is that this communication signal inventory can get everybody on the same page to say what we're looking for is that she looks more often that, or that she takes any turn, whatever that is, and a turn could be a look or a touch or this. And if we can all agree on that, then we can all see that progress. Along right. the same way, though, we don't wait to talk to the child until they're ready to talk. I mean, we've been talking to them all along. So I'm a huge advocate of going ahead and throwing in that sign before the child produces it on their own, or throwing in that picture symbol, throw in that AAC device, and make it part of their world just so it becomes a natural thing that I look at the picture symbol. And I look at mom. I don't know what I'm doing, but I've just noticed that picture symbol is part of this whole play interaction, and picture symbols are worth paying attention to. That's a very early message we forget to get across. We wait until they know how to touch things before we let them use them. Well, I do a ton of the child reaches for the toy. I slip the picture symbol in between the child's reach and the toy so that they touch that picture symbol. They don't know what they're touching, but they learn this paper thing. I touched it, and it gets me a result. It's interesting. It's worth paying attention to. I do all the work, but I'm starting to teach them that these picture symbols matter. Early on, Bye. long before they get them, in the same way every child, when we talk to them, learns that words matter long before they know exactly what those words mean. Same thing with AEC devices. They were reaching for the toy. I slipped that Big Mac right in between them and the toy. They hit it, and they're like, Oh that was interesting, uh, why was that? And then they'll start to pay attention to those devices and symbols and signs and the words and put them all together. Light. And then that symbol becomes a bridge to the word, the, the AAC device becomes a bridge to the word. It all fits together and it's all
1: part of meaningful communication. Yeah, and I saw you do that. You have had some great examples some video examples during your presentation at Asher where you were doing uh you were using AAC with was a really young baby. He was he was young.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I did that. I've started to use a lot of voice output devices early on with um my children who have significant impairments to help them understand that voice output matters. And what I'll often right. do is just record the parent's voice on there saying, you know, hi, sweetie, mommy loves you. Well, then the child learns to push that switch because good things happen when I push the switch. I don't know what it means, right. but we don't wait right. until they know how to push the switch to say, I want a cookie, to learn right. that pushing the switch gets good things. And we always right. seem to have this idea that, We have to wait for AAC, and you obviously haven't advocated for that or that we have to wait for picture symbols. But I have included voice output devices in this assessment that I'm developing for kids 2 to 12 months. And I, like you say at this presentation, I showed an example of a 2-month-old baby. And I had his mom. He'd never even played with toys. He didn't have the motor control to play with any toys or rattles or anything. But I put his
1: mom's voice on the the back. Yeah, I'm on sorry. On a blanket, he was on his yeah, back, he was on, a on it,
0: lying there, just kind of vaguely moving his arms and legs, not even intentionally, as far as I knew. We put his mom's voice on a voice output device, little switch, and I held it underneath his hand, helped him push it a couple times, and after just one or two times, he started stiffening up, and he he'd wham his hand down, and he'd wham his hand down, and he'd wham his hand down. Well, you know, that's, you know, clearly he wants to make that happen. That's intentional up to a point. Then we moved it to his feet. And as soon as he figured out that his feet made it go, he'd kick his feet and kick his feet. He was really motivated. And he'd put it by his head. He'd just turn his head to make it go. He would change what it was he did to to get to hear his mother's voice in ways that he's not officially going to have cause-effect skills in the official assessment until four or five months from there. But yet he was willing to work to get that voice output switch to go because he was learning that he was making an impact on his world and he got something he really valued for it, that, that parent well, voice. So we can make these switches and devices simpler for kids and make them more socially relevant as a way towards working towards using these devices and symbols and spoken words to mean something right.
1: to people. Well, and he was obviously a neurotypical baby. I mean, he really Mm -hmm. was excited that that you were there and that mom was there. It was a great video clip. But we have little guys that we work with who don't seem to respond and who don't seem to react and who we can't seem to get that little spark from, Mm
0: -hmm. even when
1: they're much older because they're not developing typically. So what do you do right. with those kinds of kids?
0: Well, I have, I don't know if I showed in that same session, but I part of the kind of child that intrigued me to, enough to want to do this kind of assessment was a little gal that I've worked with here in town, actually several children, but one in particular that I show at conferences, who had significant impairments, Motorically, she had cortical visual issues. She was not very interpretable. You would watch her behaviors, and you couldn't even tell what she did and didn't like. And I'll often show in yeah, conferences I a mean, tape yeah. of her, and you can't tell what she likes. She's touching a pillow and like. not, and she's got writhing behaviors. You can't tell what she's liking. And then I pulled out this Big Mac with her mother's voice on it, and all of a sudden, you could tell that she liked this. She would act on this toy, and she would act on this toy. So that's one thing, that this having something that's socially relevant for me, the more I am a limited communicator and a not neurally typical child, um, the the more it's socially and personally relevant for me, the more likely I am to respond. So we'll see kids who don't respond well to objects, let's say. So let's get back to those social routines, some of those physical routines. I'll even Mm -hmm. see kids in preschools, where they're being expected to color or work with manipulables, and those don't motivate everybody. So let's do something kinesthetic. Let's roll up and down the hall, or let's get a blanket wow. and swing, or let's do something social with the other children, and um, you know, give things back and forth, or um, a swing, or go outside and 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 put our hands in things that are interesting. Something else that's a little bit more kinesthetic, a little bit more uh, vestibular, sort of getting some swing, swinging things right. going, a lot more social. Saying hi to my friends mm-hmm. around the room might be much more interesting and much more likely to get me um, motivated than working with my math manipulables, something like that.
1: Exactly. And I love what you said about putting mom's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our for our ta- our babies and our toddlers in early intervention on the Big Mac switch rather than the therapist voice. And that happens a lot. A lot of people don't do that, but that's such a great recommendation. Right. And it's just Maybe. at that point, it's,
0: it's just something I like to hear. Yes, this child right. is pushing the switch because they know what effect it's going to have on their world yet, but it's Right, a good step along the way towards understanding how this device is going to get used in my world.
1: Right. And I think, too, sometimes we do assign meaning to those early attempts as therapists a little more quickly than we should rather than um, taking it as you are describing and saying we know that they're doing it because it's just something – that they like or they're becoming aware of, and it's not necessarily even cause and effect at that point. But it's important, and it comes first, and it's a step along
0: the way. And one important thing that we're doing is helping the child understand that it's meaningful. It's hard to know what a child does and doesn't understand at that point, but if we respond (laughs) as if it is meaningful, so, oh. You know, the child looks at the block. We know they're just looking at it because it just made a sound, or a rain stick, let's say. They look at the rain stick, it makes a sound, it gets their reaction. They didn't really tell us more, but if we respond as if they did, it's helping them learn that they could. Oh, you looked at it, I touched their face. You want more, and I turn it over. They're like, oh, you mean this little behavior gets this result. They start to put the connection between so the more I respond as if their behavior has meaning, as long as I tell them with a touch, with a specific reaction, what they did that got that result, the more that child's going to be able to put those pieces together and figure out how to control my world. Because that's something most kids want to do. I want to make things around me interpretable and controllable and social and
1: interactive.
0: They may just not have
1: many strategies for doing so. Right, and that's the whole teaching piece. That's the whole <laughs> whole reason we do that, is so that they do eventually make that connection. My point about that was, is I think sometimes when we see those earliest movements, it's not that we're not going to do it over and over and over again and reinforce it so that we know that we're building or helping that child build those connections, but it's that then we move ahead to that next step a little exactly. more, <laughs> a little faster than we should.
0: Right. And, we, we, and really we expect should... that child to be symbolic when they're still working right. out how do I control my world? Exactly. Yes,
1: we so can that's still that's throw those symbols
0: that. in as input, but not now expect them to look at a picture array and make a choice when that's right. not where their skills are right now. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And I'll see that a lot with therapists, or I, I shared with you before, when we were talking before we went on air that I get to see lots of children in a second or a third or a fourth opinion kind of visit, and they'll bring systems in or they'll talk about it, and mom will say, you know, we have these you know, six pictures here that we're supposed to be using and I'll really look at what the child is doing and he is more at that exploratory phase or I'll know that receptively he's just not quite there yet. He, he, he's not symbolic and he does not understand what what this system is for because somebody has jumped too far ahead. Right. <laughs> uh, and again excuse me, not, not. I'm sure that it, with the best of intentions and that I need to give this child a way to communicate, but they're not really, really, really looking at, at meeting a child's areas developmentally and then slowly working up from there.
0: Right. And one thing I tend to say both to my students and to families who have faced exactly that okay. situation where they're being presented okay. with an array of symbols and there, there. Are, what, what? The, the mantra that I have my students remember is one hard thing at a time. If intentionally conveying a message is a hard thing, that's one thing. If choosing between multiple things is a hard thing, there's a second hard thing. If knowing what this picture means is a hard thing, that's a third thing. Looking at this arbitrary thing and connecting it to your behavior, there's another hard thing. We sometimes but, add in too many hard things at once. But each one of those can be a good hard thing all by itself. So just learning that picture symbols are important, flip it in there. Just learning to turn to something to get a communication effect, fine. So you can take that picture array and break apart all those pieces of hard things and work on each one of them, and that's still going to work you towards that picture array being meaningful, but let's pull out the hard things and work on them one each at a time and make them meaningful. Yeah,
1: I think that's great advice. Great, great, great advice. Okay, so let's get back to kind of talking about the tests. I'm, okay. I'm scatterbrained as usual today. Any long-time listener of the show would say that. You of all over the place, but by the end it makes sense. Let's talk about the other or the specific kinds of things that you are assessing when you are using um, your upcoming tool. You betcha. The tool is called the
0: ISCBS, and just like the CSBS that is commercially available, it'll be sold through Brooks when we get it done. And it's intended to be um, an assessment of communication for kids between two and 12 months to detect communication risk. It's premature to be saying this is going to be diagnostic yet of children at those ages. But to be able to look and say, these skills are not typical yet of what we would expect, this will be a normed as well as a standardized test that we can then give to any children for whom we do or don't know that there are risk factors involved and uh, be able to compare that to norm. So that's one purpose of this, to detect communication risk before 12 months. Another use, though, is to give it to children who are still in the skill range to see How can we characterize the various domains of skills that they have, even though we know they're behind their risk or behind their uh, age expectations? We developed this test on purpose to make sure that all the items are what I call domain independent, meaning if I have a child who can't use their hands, so many of our developmental assessments say reaches hand and that is the item. You have to use your hand or you're going to fail this item. We made sure that if we're looking at attention, we don't say looks to the parent. We say attends to. Maybe I don't have vision, but I can show that I'm paying attention. Maybe I can't reach for something, but I can act on it in some way. So we made sure that it's as as much as possible that these items could be filled regardless of the physical or sensory skills that a child might have or not have at any given point. So The kinds of things that this assessment looks at um, are early vocal skills, early ways of showing that I can communicate, affect, how well I show my emotion, attention, how well I shift uh, gaze and pay attention to things in my environment, engagement with people, anticipation, do I know how to expect things are going to happen, taking turns, reciprocity. That whole idea of mastery, will I stick with something and try to, you know, do or die to get that that task accomplished? And exploration, can I figure out ways to manipulate things in my world? Um, Like I say, a little bit of some emergent literacy, how much am I engaged with written and predictable information in my world? A little bit about receptive language and a little bit about some imitation and um standard probes like you know screening kids uh tracking and, and hearing and things like that right so this is intended both to look at communication risk to know kids mm-hmm. under 12 months that we need to get some more help for to to track uh, to to identify skills in children who we know to be at risk and then three to be able to track progress in these skills because so often we're waiting, we're put on our IFSP or on our IEP for a child, even that they'll mm-hmm. become intentional, that they'll intentionally reach for toys. Well, for some kids, that may be all year and or longer. Exactly. <laughs> we need some other steps along the way to be showing progress. So can we show just, them shifting? The, shifting their attention. I just think to that anything.
1: is a value. Yeah, I think that's going to be huge for therapists in early intervention. And, again, not to do it. And we all look at these things informally, or we hope we do, (laughs) when we're looking at children who are in that developmental range. But we really do need a black and white sheet of paper Mm
0: -hmm. with
1: um, these skills specifically enumerated so that we um, can know what we're assessing know how to talk to parents about it, and then, like you say, to more importantly track that progress as we're uh, having a child in therapy. So I, I love the communication risk piece of this assessment, but for me as a therapist, the second and third uses that you talked about with um, looking at children who we know are already at risk or already identified, I think this is just a huge um area of possibility for us as clinicians. Well, I appreciate that. That's actually what
0: drove me to want to develop this assessment. The communication risk piece is the one that's going to get broader use potentially, but my heart it still goes out to those kids where we know we're working hard on the stage of development. And I, I give workshops all over the country for trying to help people see how else we can set up a multitude of goals at these very earliest stages because it's so hard to see anything other than that intentional communication or that symbolic communication as one goal all by itself. And to get a whole package of skills that go together here really is going to be a help to clinicians. And one thing we want to make as part of this manual is um, at least some ideas of IFSP and IEP goals that can result from certain profiles that are associated with this assessment and at least an idea of where to clinically go with this Know, down the road, yeah. years from now, once the assessment's out, I want to do a clinical manual attached to it just because um, it's a, an excuse to pull together a lot of these clinical techniques that I've worked up over the years and make well, those and a I'm going to parents to, and clinicians.
1: And I know that you're a researcher and that's your primary position, but honestly, for me, as a, as a, a day-to-day speech-language pathologist, that's what I'm most excited at is hearing you say that with your compilation of those tricks that you're using, uh, to really work toward those milestones and work toward those goals. And I think you're I think fifty okay. um, goals for therapists will be great too because sometimes I do see things written on IFSPs and IPs are too general. And I think, gosh, there's no way we're gonna get here from from the child I'm looking at right now <laughs> To what you have listed on that piece of paper, I'm, you know, I think that's more a long-term goal than and something. And then every week, frustrated, later.
0: and the parents right. get frustrated because this same goal has been on there for three years, and then we don't see the genuine progress the child is making because we're right. not seeing how to set our goals in those small steps that are actually achievable. Right. Exactly. exactly. So yes, as a researcher, I, I love the research and the finding out. But I like to be a researcher who can do the research into practice, saying, Okay, what difference does this make?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm I'm most no, excited about that. Okay. So I liked during your presentation at ASHA, where you talked about with assessment with children all the wonderful things that we can use, all of our tools, our toys that we can use to elicit these kinds of behaviors when we are assessing a child. So we talk a little bit about that. How you would get, um, what you would do to get a good look at what a child sure. can do. Some of the things. So that even use.
0: before you have, you know, my new assessment. Um, if you think, let me go back to the CSBS a second and say how easy some of those toys are. They're real things. The CSBS, the one that looks at intentional communication, uses bubbles. And wind-up toys, and Cheerios in a jar, and dolls. And um, those are things every early interventionist has in your closets. You you simply exactly. use those all the time. You know, parents will have these at home, so they're familiar. You look at this assessment, and it looks like real life. And then you there's an easy bridge from what's happening on this assessment to what you could be doing in real life. So that's an easy bridge. Same thing occurs with this assessment. So we looked at... Um, there are four um, probes that we have in this assessment that just look at parent play. We ask the parents to say, well, what little physical games do you do with your baby, like bouncing, like swinging, like, you know, throw, you know, for older babies, throwing them on the couch or whatever they have. So we, we look at the parents playing their normal little games. We have them play tickle, and then we pause, and then we do the tickle. We have them sing a little song and then pause in the song. We have them look at a book together. Those are things that parents are liable to be naturally doing with their kids. Maybe they forget about the book this young with babies, but it's, it's fascinating to watch how babies are still engaged in particularly these crinkle books or the texture books and things that are early on. Let's get books to be part of the world of our kids who are still early communicators. So those are things you'll have on hand. Then we made sure in our assessments we didn't just have like blocks. For babies, even though we have blocks as part of the assessment, they're the, the jingly blocks or the, the ones that have texture to them or the something inside of them. So it's interesting to young babies. We have some toys that vibrate. And again, we went to, you know, Walmart and other kinds of standard places to get these toys. We didn't want specialized things. Or um, things like rain sticks that have a lot of movement and action to them or things Mm -hmm. that have lights and sounds, just your average lights and sounds toy out there. Um, Some other things that we use, like ball. We actually introduced baby dolls to these very young infants, not because we expect them to play with the dolls, but we we showed them some pretend playing. We gave them the bottle, and it's amazing. The same little boy that you saw who was hitting that uh, voice output switch in the video that I saw that was two months old, we pulled out the baby doll first thing, he looked at that baby doll and he laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And he was the youngest of several boys. So it's not like he had a lot of experience with dolls, but he thought that doll was the most just wonderful thing he'd ever seen.
1: We're not used to
0: introducing these kinds of toys to young babies. But if you help the child hold on to some of these things and you help them control it, kids want to use their muscles. And I saw, when I was first a parent, I saw a wonderful... um, phrase in a, some sort of a parent you know, tips book from Johnson and Johnson or something that says pa- babies learn by doing. It's like, ah, yeah. as a therapist that clicked. Babies don't learn by watching. Babies don't Bye. learn by being done for. Babies learn by doing. So you oh. get toys where they can do something. Even our two months old, we put this little vibrating pillow on their lap. We turn it on and we turn it off and we wait to see if they'll touch the pillow. Yes, they can't turn it on themselves, but will they interact with this toy? We've got a little vibrating cookie monster. Will they touch cookie monster's eyes because he's interesting? So then that's their way of engaging and getting more. So it's, again, you as an early interventionist, I'm sure, and your listeners as parents have things that your kids enjoy. The only thing that makes it different for this assessment is that we present it And we give a pause for the child to take a turn. What will they do when it's their turn? We know already they won't do the uh, uh, uh-uh-uh because they're still working on it. But what will they do when we pause to give them a possibility of a turn? Then we watch that and we see how systematic that is and we help to build that child towards being a little bit more deliberate. So array of things that have texture, things that vibrate, things that have lights and sounds, things that are social, things that are interactive, we, we throw a little ball back and forth. They have one of those little um, balls that have holes in it. It's just real lightweight. You get those at the, you know, the brainy kid's store or whatever things. and It's just got the, it's real light plastic. It's got holes in it. And it's really easy to hold on to. It. You can just hook a little finger onto it. Even if I've got physical impairments, I can hang onto that ball and then notice that you're going to take it back and we're going to play games back and forth, and it'll be fun. So standard kinds of toys, it just you change up a little bit how you play with them. And then when you play with the toy, you give them a great big social response so that there's a reason to look back from the toy to you. Plenty of our babies, I could care less about the toy. I want to get a reaction from you. So they'll touch the toy and they'll look up at us like, yeah, are you (laughs) going to react? That's what we'd love to see from more of our kids. So they touch the toy, and then we get down on their face, and we give them a big social response. Well, maybe now they'll turn to look to us because, by George, this is interesting. Or we She's get the fun toy. To yeah. Yeah. Exactly, I'm fun to look at. We help them look at us. We help them get information from us. And whenever they do look at us, they get something meaningful. They get more tickle. They get more balls. They get more of what it is they're wanting. So they learn to look towards us for something that's useful for them in this interaction. Right. Right. That
1: sounds great. All right. So where would you go from here? What have we not talked about, Cynthia, that you think we should talk about? Well, let's
0: see. Um, I would say um, another issue is you've mentioned um, working with parents to make this natural for the parents. I would say getting the team together And making sure the team is on board, too. I love working as part of an early intervention team where we've got the Mm -hmm. OT and the early intervention educator and the parent and maybe the vision specialist and the speech therapist, all working together. When you're working with these very early communicators, these skills overlap so much. We could all be working on the same sets of skills with just a little bit different perspective. So maybe the OT is working more toward on reaching and some range of motion skills towards that ball. And I'm wanting to work on the child taking a turn. We can do this together. So the therapist holds it a little bit out of reach. The OT holds it a little bit out of reach because they want them to reach. Well, I want them to communicate. We have the same goals. We're working on the same skills. It doesn't have to be extra time. This is also a benefit for the parents because you just don't have that much energy to Work on these skills. You, you don't have the time. This is, this is a child who needs a lot of care and attention. So while you're changing them, let's make these skills fit into changing time. Let's make these skills fit into um, natural activities that you do, getting them out of their high, high chair or helping them arrange themselves on the floor. I've had some parents tell me that trying to work on new skills during feeding time may not be their preference because feeding time's already kind of busy and hard to manage with the child, particularly if they have physical concerns. But what other routines am I already doing? And I could just tweak a little bit of it and not have to make special therapy time for this child. It just needs right. to be part of what's already fun and useful and part of what this family already does. So you don't have to be well, the child's
1: therapist,
0: but you just make use of the interactions you
1: have. Right, and I think teaching parents how to play and how to work that into things they're already doing rather than just always taking care of business um, is really good um, use of our time as therapists, too, so that they can do double duty and right. still get that therapy time in as they're going about the daily routine. So I, I think that's a great way to do that. I love that advice. Love, love, love that advice. All right, so let's review those. Is there anything else that you think we... We missed. That um, we didn't talk about. I did want to review the big categories again that you're looking at. Okay, let's let's do that, and
0: then we'll <laughs> flip in anything else as
1: we need. Okay, that sounds great. So we were going to look at emergent communication, mm-hmm. anything that was show that the child wants something. Early vocalizations in response to activities. So we're looking at that. We're looking at engagement, and that. How do you define engagement?
0: Engagement uh, as on this assessment are things like. Smiling back when you smile at them or having what I call radar, watching what you're doing just because you're doing it, not because it's getting any anything. That's a skill that Mm -hmm. we forget is a skill, but you don't notice it until it's missing. Or checking back with an adult. I'm I'm playing with a toy, and I just look back to see if you're paying attention, and I'll play again. That's engaging with me to be connected to what I'm doing because I'm doing it.
1: Well, adult. I think those attention checks are so important, and a lot of times as therapists we forget to do that. And I've seen therapists do this before, too. They'll not count an attention check for what it is. They'll say, oh, he's not really maybe maintaining attention to that cho- toy because he really is more worried about what his mom is doing. And I think, that's perfect. That's Yeah, works. he's connecting <laughs> his activities to the adults.
0: That's perfect, yeah. We want to see them making that interaction.
1: Right. And so, and then anticipation—that's mm-hmm. that a child knows what's coming yes, next. Is it expecting that something's going to happen? Like if you take that tickle routine
0: and you hold your hand out in front of them, maybe they don't yet know how to get you to have more tickles, but they start kicking their legs because they know that tickle's going to happen, and they a skill to be able to. It is a Something skill. in a routine or in a play it activity.
1: Commutes. And when I see that a child does that, I say to mom, woohoo, we met a goal today. Look at that. Because a lot of That's times, they do count that these things are important as we're moving mm-hmm. a child um, through this continuum. Affect, of course, is that emotion that a child right. would display. And moving from showing emotion towards things or
0: just to the space in general to really wanting to look at us when they show those feelings. So sharing those feelings with us is a step of progress
1: that we can be making. I think that's a great point. And then attention, mm-hmm. with um, and how are ways that you measure that attention, peak? I know you talk about uh, we've got a couple of things: attending to
0: sound, our voices because we're talking to them, att- uh, paying attention to things just because we're showing it to them, not because it's doing anything yet. A lot of kids may not really again be paying attention to what we're doing until it becomes interesting but kids who are watching what we're doing just because they're watching it if we show them an object they're paying attention to that object just because we're showing it to them that's them joining in our world a little bit more or then shifting attention back and forth at least between what we're holding and our faces
1: even if they don't get that full three point back to the object yet yeah I think that's an important point is that that we're, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with that, so I think that's And great. it's an early and way kind of kind of, of it.
0: sharing it with us before they point, that they look at the object and look back at us like, yeah, do you see that? I see that. They're not yet pointing, but that's the kind of behavior that will start to lead to things
1: like pointing. Right, and it's what we'll see just before pointing emerges, and a lot of times, right. again, therapists may miss that, and a parent. Right. May not know that at all, so we have to be there to point that out as to say. But look, it's coming because we can see these prerequisite skills building in, and we're seeing them more frequently, and so we know that we're on the right track here. Cool. Ex- exploration was mm-hmm. the next one, I believe, if I write it down correctly. Cool. And that, at the time uh, that was doing more than one thing, right? Right, playing with more than one part of
0: the um, object, so not just getting stuck on one part of it. And some of our kids on the spectrum may need help learning new ways to play with toys. I don't just bang it; I can bang it and um push it or pat it or you know pick it up and drop it. all kinds of different ways to play and then we have an inventory of different ways to play with the object. You know mouthing it is of course a very early appropriate thing to do, but can I bang it on the floor? Can I bang things together? Do I actually explore it and turn it over or try to push different parts of it to see what happens? Do I actually put things in, take them out? Those are the kinds of things you're involved with your OT at working on goals for not only controlling what I can do, but understanding how I interact with the objects in my world and having more than one way to do that.
1: Right. I love your emphasis on mastery and that whole yes. persistence piece because I think so many of our little kids with developmental delays have such short, it's, it's not really the right word here, but there's situativeness right always aren't always there yet. So I think this is a huge one to look for and to work on and to
0: teach. Right. And to know that a child might have uh, limited persistence then we give them a lot of success early. We don't let them struggle. We give them one try or two tries, and then we help them. Or we help them first and then give them a chance to be independent. So, if, But if you have a child who's got that persistence, that stick-to-itiveness, you can let them work it out a little bit more. So knowing where your child is on persistence, and then if you have a child who has low persistence, you're, you're not stuck there. But we start with, you know, an easy turn, and then every couple easy turns, maybe we give you something a little bit harder for once, and we Mm -hmm. just gradually make it a little bit harder for you, but we keep lots of success built in there for you. And we know that you may not persist very long if you don't have some success.
1: Yeah, I think that's huge, and I think sometimes therapists go the other way and try to treat that just from a behavioral Perspective, rather than a developmental perspective, and then they're doing things to <laughs> almost ensure that the child will not stay with the activity, uh, with being uh, going straight to disciplinary things, or again, just the complete opposite reaction from. Let me just make this easier for you, so that you can stay with me, and so that you want to do it again, versus mm-hmm. I'm completely done with this toy in with you. Right, and that's what
0: I love about our job as speech-language pathologist because I will tell kids and parents, I'm here to help you tell me what you want. That's my entire right. purpose in being here, and to help you express what you're thinking. And so I'm here to listen to you. I'm not here to make you do something. If you're not motivated, then we need to change the task, or we need to change exactly. the parameters of the task, or we need to change the activity, because... It's about you communicating your message to me, and so me being able to listen to what that is and changing the parameters of how this is going to work so that you can indeed get your message across to me.
1: And I think we have to honor children's notes and honor their yes. ways of communicating, I don't want to do this anymore.
0: Exactly, and so <laughs> with the like adults it. I work with a lot of the adults who are early communicators that I work with, that is what I tell my students. The very first thing is you have to honor their no or they're not going to trust you for any of these other messages because they have not been listened to for a very long period of time. When you get to be an adult and you're an early communicator, you have to honor those no's first before I'm going to be willing to persist on any of the yeses that I might want to
1: convey. So that yeah, starts early on. Huge. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think huge. All right, what did I miss with that? Were there anything else any oh, let's see. reciprocity with taking
0: turns and that's again as part of a routine where you're taking those turns and then obviously the early speech and the, um, mm-hmm. the emergent literacy is again just I'll have parents say where's the ball in the book and we know the child doesn't know but will they actually follow the parent's finger will they know that the parent's talking to them will they share looking back and forth between the book and the parent just things that are starting to build towards not only book skills, but picture symbol skills or other ways of being symbolic in their world. So we, you know, literacy starts at birth in the same sense communication starts at birth. You just have to change how you think about what literacy is. Exactly, That's, I so agree. And then did you mention receptive language? And then receptive language. We'll, you know, say um, I'm going to tickle your nose, and then we tickle your nose. Well, they don't know what their nose is, but that's one of the early things that kids do understand based on those routines. So do they, I'm going to tickle your feet. Well, do they kick their feet kind of anticipating it? They're starting to kind of maybe get that. I've I, I just read some research recently that said by six months, kids can kind of figure out their body parts in situations exactly like that. So, you know, we're building those receptive language skills on the way up Again, towards the bigger
1: picture of being symbolic. Exactly, and you have to see it as an almost (laughs) understands before fully understands. And I, I tell parents all the time, he's not sorry. We're working on it. (laughs) This is what we're teaching here. He doesn't have to do today. Yeah,
0: that's let's make use of it. Whatever we've got, let's make use of it right now. You bet.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, we are at the end of another lightning fast hour. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Crest for being with us and talking about this upcoming tool. I've already said five or six times now how excited I am about it. I think it's just going to be great for, again, the identification of young, young babies who are at risk, but more importantly for those other therapeutic things that we talked about. And I, again, I'm just so excited and that you share that information with us, and can't wait to get my hands on that when it's
0: <laughs> You okay. bet. I'll be, I'll be letting you know.
1: All right. Thanks so much. That's well, all for today. Too.
0: Okay. Take care now. Okay. You too.
1: Bye bye. Bye bye.